Welcome one and welcome all to another episode of this podcast, the hub for everything political and pop culture. Let me begin as I always do and introduce myself. My name is Brian Knight and this is Tell a Friend. I hope you've all had a good and unproblematic week, but without further ado, let's begin with the Run the News segment. Okay, the first story for Run the News is all about what's going on between the Indian government and Kashmir. This all began in the early days of August, our current month, when troops moved into the semi-autonomous region of Indian-administered Kashmir and began cutting services such as telephone and internet communication. There was speculation that unpopular restrictions were to be introduced, but what followed proved more shocking. Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his BJP party decided to revoke Article 370, which granted a partially autonomous status to Jammu and Kashmir. As well as blocking all communication in the region, senior Kashmir politicians were placed under house arrest. The Prime Minister and his BJP party have claimed that they revoked the article in order to better integrate the state of Jammu and Kashmir closer to India. The BJP also claimed they were trying to rectify a, quote, historical blunder. However, many Kashmiris have accused the government of trying to drastically alter the region by permitting non-Kashmiris to buy land and settle in the region. Political commentators have pointed out that in the recent elections in May, Modi had secured a majority through appealing to Hindu nationalists who supported a tougher stance towards Kashmir and Pakistan, and they also supported the revoking of Article 370. To understand these recent developments, one must reflect on the turbulent history over the Kashmir region. Following Indian partition in 1947, Kashmir, formerly a princely state, joined India. But after a dispute between India and Pakistan, it was agreed that the region would be divided into a Pakistan-administered part and another which was Indian-administered. Article 370, which was enacted in 1949, gave the state of Jammu and Kashmir many freedoms to separate it from India. These granted freedoms included exemptions from India's constitution, the state was also allowed to have its own flag, and they were also given the power to make their own legislation on all matters except finance, defence, foreign affairs and communication. Separatists in Indian-administered Kashmir have had frequent tensions and disputes with the Indian government. Many constitutional and legal experts have debated the legality of Prime Minister Modi's actions, since the constitution stipulates that Article 370 can only be revoked with the agreement of the government of the state of Jammu and Kashmir. The government of Jammu and Kashmir have pretty much been out of session, and they've been in a bit of a liminal phase since June of last year, when the chief minister lost his majority. The controversy surrounding Jammu and Kashmir is highly sensitive and has become a significant talking point for nationalists. This has made it even harder for opposition parties to freely disavow the actions of Prime Minister Modi and the BJP without receiving widespread backlash from Indian patriots. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn took to Twitter calling out human rights abuses in Kashmir. He wrote, quote, The situation in Kashmir is deeply disturbing. Human rights abuses taking place are unacceptable. The rights of Kashmiri people must be respected and UN resolutions implemented. This past Saturday, however, saw clashes between Kashmiris and Indian security forces. This, as reported by The Independent, promoted the reinstatement of Section 144, which prevented gatherings of more than four people. Whilst the Indian government has ordered government employees in the Kashmir to return to work and also the reopening of schools, many believe the unrest is far from over. What is apparent in this story is that the Kashmiris have been left without a say. 
Like I always urge, please read more into the story and read multiple news outlets as serious sensitive issues such as this cannot really be and should not be solely understood from a summary on a podcast or even an article alone. It really does require us to read and contextualise the issue. Okay, let's move on to talk about the next story in Run the News. Another week, another Home Office controversy. In the past week, the Home Office, now run by the newly promoted Conservative MP Priti Patel, came under scrutiny over an anti-knife crime campaign aimed predominantly at young people. The outrage was over the distribution of 321,000 chicken shop boxes with hashtag knife free on the outside of the box and an anti-knife crime story inside. It didn't take long before a Twitter storm erupted of people labelling the campaign as deeply racist and ineffective. These chicken shop boxes had been trialled, and according to the Home Office, they received a positive reception, and consequently the department decided to roll out this initiative by sending the boxes to 210 chicken shops. Senior Labour MP Diane Abbott took to Twitter stating, and I quote, Instead of investing in a public health approach to violent crime, the Home Office has opted for yet another crude, offensive and probably expensive campaign. They would do better to invest in our communities, not demonise them. MP David Lammy further made a case against the campaign. When speaking to The Guardian, Lammy condemned the Home Office for, quote, using taxpayers' money to sponsor an age-old trope. He went on to say, quote, Boris Johnson has already called black people pickaninnies and watermelon smiles. Now his government is pushing a stereotype that black people love fried chicken. This ridiculous stunt is either explicitly racist or, at best, unfathomably stupid. End quote. The reaction of both Abbott and Lamy reflect the two main issues many people had with this campaign the apparent use of racial stereotyping and the ineffectiveness of the initiative. To give context, it's important to note that black people, especially African Americans, have been racially stereotyped for decades, not only for supposed physical features, but also for behavioural traits such as liking fried chicken and eating watermelon. Many have attributed Jim Crow era films and other forms of media for these stereotypes. For example, a lot of blame has been placed on the deeply racist 1915 film The Birth of a Nation for giving legitimacy to these stereotypes and cementing them in popular discourse. Now, one has to wonder how the Home Office initiative was strategized and even trialed without anyone raising any flags about the messages such a campaign was giving. The other criticism that has been placed on the campaign is that it is cheap, ineffective, and failing to address the root causes of knife crime in many inner-city communities. Many commentators have spoken about the continued lack of funding for youth centres and other community services. There are many factors to this problem. Austerity is a factor. Poverty is a factor. School expulsion rates are a factor. Disproportionate use of stop and search and the general breakdown in the relationship between the police force and ethnic minority communities, that's another factor. I want to stress the fact that while some have racialized the issue of knife crime, this has been disputed. I refer specifically to the author and activist Akala's interview with Channel 4 and ITV. In both interviews, he demonstrated how statistics are frequently manipulated in order to create a moral panic of black-on-black -black crime. He went on to state how knife crime has become a, quote, racial buzzword, since many people are willing to emphasise the race of the victims and perpetrators, but are also willing to overlook the causal factors that link them, such as growing up in the care system, their communities being underfunded, and, like I previously mentioned, school expulsion rates. Many critics of this Home Office initiative did, however, praise Glasgow for their handling of knife crime in the city. 
The approach taken over in Scotland was a public health approach which focused on early intervention and causes rather than symptoms of such crimes. Many have also used Glasgow, which is a majority white city, as an example of how issues of knife crime cannot simply be reduced to a race problem. This whole scenario is rather unfortunate because it just adds on to the expansive list of home office blunders. Okay, now time to talk about Operation Yellowhammer. This weekend saw a government report titled Operation Yellowhammer, which was leaked to the Sunday Times. The document gave insight into the worst case scenarios and possible consequences of the UK leaving the European Union without a deal. The leaked document listed some of these potential risks which may occur with the no deal exit. Fresh food is said to be at risk, whilst other goods ending up in short supply. Food prices are expected to increase according to this leaked dossier. The document goes on to state how there is a high chance of transport delays which could last a month, especially affecting lorries and heavy goods vehicles. It went on to state the possibility of shortages of medicines such as insulin and vaccines. It mentioned the likelihood of nationwide protests, a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and also the risk of passenger delays at EU airports. These are just some of the risks listed. Operation Yellowhammer is not entirely a new discovery. It was revealed in September of last year. However, the report has only just been obtained by the Sunday Times. Senior Cabinet Minister Michael Gove responded to the leak by stating this private government report had been partially exaggerated. It's now 72 days until we're set to leave the EU, and the future is as uncertain as ever. Whew, got through the Brexit segment. Moving on. Okay, let's talk about what went well. Okay, time for what went well. This week, for what went well, I want to give a massive shout out to the ladies of the Receipts podcast who recently signed an exclusivity deal with Spotify for their podcast. You know, I've been a listener since episode two or maybe three, I forget exactly now, but basically, I fell in love with their show. It's unfiltered, it's hilarious, and frankly, it's become my weekly staple. And on top of their deal, they've also been appearing all around London on billboards promoting their show. So I want to give them the recognition they deserve, because their content and their consistency is top-notch. So well done, Audrey, Tolly, and Milena. Okay, time for Be Better. This week, Be Better goes to... myself. And probably most of you listening. Confused? Let me explain. So recently a report was released by development charity Christian Aid, which warned against West's contribution to climate change and how it was creating havoc for countries which are the least to blame for environmental issues. Christian Aid researchers found that countries such as Burundi, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Madagascar, Yemen and Sierra Leone were being highly impacted in terms of food production as a result of climate change. A shocking figure I read on the BBC News site actually stated that one Briton on average is responsible for producing the same amount of CO2 as 200 Burundians. Christian Aid study found that the 10 countries with the most food insecurity due to climate change contributed a sum of 0.08% of all global emissions. A BBC News article by Matt McGrath highlighted how a Saudi Arabian, on average, produces the same amount of CO2 as 718 Burundians. Every week, scientists and activists are sending out these stark warnings about the need to drastically change our approach to the environment, our approach to recycling, and also to our use of fossil fuels. But for some reason, the message doesn't seem to be getting across. Maybe we in the West are slow and reluctant to change our approach to the environment because we are yet to face the immediate everyday consequences. 
Low CO2 producing countries around the world, which happen to be some of the weakest economically, should not be facing food insecurity due largely to the actions, or lack thereof, of the West and other high CO2 producing nations. This was a story that really stuck out to me, and as ever, I urge you to read into this and find out ways you can make a difference, be it on a small scale or through contacting those in a higher office. Do what you can. Okay, before I sign off for the show, I wanted to talk a bit about a favourite author of mine. By now, most of you will have heard about the passing of author extraordinaire Toni Morrison. She died on the 5th of August at the age of 88, and you know, the news of her passing really did catch me off guard, I'm not gonna lie. You see, back when I was in year 9, I became fascinated by Oprah Winfrey, and initially it was a material obsession at her wealth and her fame, but soon I began watching old episodes of her show and really listening to what she had to say. So by the time I reached year 11, I started reading Oprah's pics from her book club. So picture this, I was a 14 slash 15 year old black boy living in the most rural village in the southwest, going to pretty much an all white school, with the odd exception. And there I was being introduced to the works of Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, and of course, Toni Morrison. I remember reading The Bluest Eye, and at times marvelling at her tactical use of the Dick and Jane rhyme, at other times tearing up in sympathy of Pecola Breedlove, and I won't lie, it was a tough read both figuratively and literally. But I remember having a deeper understanding of the notion of othering and the plight faced by black people, and black women especially. Seeing legends like Angelou and Morrison pass away is so sad because these are some of the people I have dreamt of meeting and thanking them for everything they did to help me understand the world I live in and about my own black identity. Despite them being gone, I will always maintain that they are some of the giants whose shoulders I stand on, and today, I speak their names. If you have not read or come across any of Miss Morrison's work, it's not too late. No matter your race, religion, class, gender, her writing is for everyone to read, learn, and enjoy. So, this episode is dedicated to Toni Morrison. Okay, I'm going to wrap up this episode with our conclusive segment, Tell a Friend. This week I've been thinking a lot about the idea of seeking validation and about the need we all feel to be loved, liked, and accepted. But in actual fact, this need to please can be the cause of us being so unproductive. Miraculously, I managed to summarise my thoughts into words. So, here goes. Tell a friend that seeking validation and the approval of masses is nothing but the art of procrastination, since it is the best way of ensuring that nothing gets done. Did you hear that? Did you? Really? I don't think you heard that, so I'm going to say it again for the people at the back this time. Seeking validation and the approval of the masses is nothing but the art of procrastination, since it is the best way of ensuring that nothing gets done. And that, my friends, is Brian Knight's guide to being a better human being. I joke, I joke. But I did mean what I say. Okay, that is all for today's episode, so I'm going to wish you all an unproblematic, productive, fulfilling, joyous, and healthy week. As always, remember, if you enjoyed the show, what are we going to do? We're going to read the title and we're going to tell a friend. But if you didn't enjoy the show, you clearly weren't listening. So go back, listen again, and enjoy. Bye. Bye.